ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's time for What Do You Call It Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of What Do You Call It? podcast i'm your host gb and today's guest is a hall of famer he's captured many titles in his illustrious career including being a former wcw tag team champion and tv champion a former nwa western states champion a former and the last awa world champion he also he was also the guy who told bill Watts to go f himself yeah. please give it up for the living legend larry Zabisco. how are you today sir well, I'm doing good. Thank you very much. Hello, That's everybody good. out there in podcast land. <laughs> Everyone but, uh, listening is going to be enjoying this episode because you've had such an amazing career and you're doing well today. So that's a good way to start off the show. And you've worked for some of the biggest wrestling companies today, such as AWA, NWA, WWF and TNA when yeah. it was good. So I want to start. From the beginning, rewind the clocks a little bit, and I'd just like to know, were you a big wrestling fan growing up? Well, I was. You know, I was born in Chicago and never saw wrestling. And then we were about 12 years old or so, my dad got transferred to Pittsburgh. So we moved to Pittsburgh, and in Pittsburgh was the first time I ever saw a wrestling show. Oh, okay. I became a big fan quick. It was yeah, Saturday Night Wrestling with Chili Billy Cardilly. But the heavyweight champion of the world that time in his prime was Bruno. And Bruno was awesome. I mean, like, holy cow. I mean, you believe this guy could walk through a wall. Mm. <laughs> I mean, for the time, he, he looked, you know, ridiculous. People believed in him. Mm. So, you know, I, he became my hero. And God, there's a weird circumstance, too. Like, because my dream became, well, I want to be like Bruno. I want to be... Plus, it had to do back then in those days mm. with being a good guy and, and evil beating up the bad guys. That, that's what was on the TV shows mm. and in your head and back in those days. The good guys always won, you know. And um, so I got to be a Bruno fan. And it was a relationship that went on 50 years, you know. I mean, he uh, was impressed with, with my amateur career. It was funny because the first time I met him, would you know to wrestle? I don't know. Should, should I tell you this story? Yeah, you can tell. You can tell me any story. Like I'm here. Like I'm gonna be like a big kid, and you can tell me any story. But yeah, the weird, the weird thing about the dream. I want everybody to know that this is a story about a dream that came true and was meant to come true because there was omens, mm. you know, involved in it. Like when I was 13 years old, I just moved to Pittsburgh, became a big fan and a Bruno fan. Oh my God. My parents dragged me off to church one day, one Sunday, and I'm sitting there in the pew in this little church called St. Sebastian. Mm. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I look next to me and I see this gigantically broken nose with this big head and these weird ears. And like this <laughs> big, I'm going, oh my God, I'm sitting next to Bruno. And that was the first time I ever saw him because I was sitting next to him in the pew in this little St. Sebastian. And the reason I'm telling you this is because after the mass, I ran down with a Sunday bulletin and asked for his autograph. And I was only like 13. 
Mm. And that's the first time man met him. The weird part about that beginning of the story is when Bruno died a few years ago, yeah. his yeah. funeral was in the St. Sebastian, that same little church. And I was sitting like in the same pew that I was in when I was 13. And it was like, it was like the omen was over. It was like, you know, the first time I met him was here, right here. And 50 years later, the last time I'm ever going to be with him because the coffin was right there. It was the exact same little church, St. Sebastian. It was just too weird beyond coincidence. But what I did was, when I was 16 years old, mm -hmm. and started driving, I found out Bruno lived a couple of miles away. So I drive by his house once in a while, like a stalker, you know, trying to get a glimpse of him. And one day I'm driving down the street and he had a backyard that had a pool in it, but there was these big giant hedges, green hedges around it. So you really couldn't see in the backyard. But as I was driving by, I caught a glimpse of him standing by the pool, tan. And I couldn't help it. I stopped my car. I was like 16 and I didn't know what to do. So I just started crawling through these hedges and came out the other side and I was making all this noise and he was standing there looking over at me. I'm like, oh my God, he's a gorilla. <laughs> and I come through, I got stickers on me and bushes, but I came through and introduced myself and was very respectful and and, and that's how I kind of got into it. I saw him a couple other times that way and, mm. and it was at a time in his career where he was like really at the biggest of his prime but didn't want to do all the little high school shows in the week. So he just worked the weekends and did the big shows, the gardens and the spectrums, you know. So we got to, you know, work. I got to work out with him, did the same Bruno workout for a couple of years as I was finishing college. Mm. I was about to say, what, what was that? Like? <laughs> well, he had his Bruno workout. We spent an hour and a half just on chest. I mean, when I was, when I turned 21 and started the business, I weighed like 240, 245 in between. Mm. And I was benching 465 and a half pounds. Boom. You know, and got that kind of Bruno look. And, you know, mm. Heavy weights for chest, and arms and traps. Because it was an upper body business on TV. People saw that look. And, oh, my God. Mm. You know? So he's quite but, big then. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Bruno was still doing 505. Yeah, I mean, he had giant bones. and you know, he, was, he was just a naturally... Raw bone, big bones, strong guy. But uh, then he helped me out, and then he's the one that made the call to you know Vince McMahon Sr. and said, "Hey, I got this kid. I'd like you to bring him in." And Vince Sr. said, "Of course," because Bruno was the big star. So, mm. so I had politics on my side that I didn't even realize I had because I was like 21. I just couldn't believe this. I'm gonna be a wrestler. Oh my god! You know, Did you receive any backlash? when you basically were Bruno's sort of protege. So, I mean, obviously it was a great opportunity for you and obviously Bruno's putting in the word for you, but did you feel any resentment from some of the uh, the wrestlers back then? Did I feel resentment? Yes. No, you know what? I, I didn't get any resentment at all. Mm. In fact, back in those days, they didn't want you in the business. They wanted you sitting in a seat holding a ticket stub because in those days, if you didn't sell tickets, you didn't eat. It's not like today where they're getting contracts and merchandise and all that stuff. So it was a different game. And the old timers and the other guys that were in there didn't want you in. And normally they wouldn't tell you anything to help you because there was no schools. You learned on the fly. You know, you know what you're yeah. doing. But 
because I was Bruno's protege, all the guys, you know, Strongbows and the Altimores and the Scolans and everybody else and would be extra nice to me and help me out with things and mm. teach me psychology tips because that would be like getting points with Bruno. Yeah, true. I didn't rethink really that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was. Yeah, it was like being nice to Bruno's protege. You know, it was like getting over better with Bruno. Mm. If if they hated me and as Bruno's protege, so then they figured they get heat. Yeah, but I was good, and then the role I did, you know, they teamed me up with Gurria at the beginning, so I could learn a little bit. Then Bruno sent me out six months to Vancouver to you know, brush up and get better so I wouldn't be seen in New York and and then brought me back for the official protege thing. Mm. Just before we do talk about, you know, basically maybe your most famous angle with Bruno, the mentor, and you know, basically like as a friend and sort of your ultimate betrayal, as a tag team with Tony Greer, uh, you've mentioned before that working with, for example, a tag team like the Valiant Brothers was a night off for you. What was it about them that made it sort of easy for you to wrestle? Well, the Valiant Brothers, and even some of the other guys, you know, back in those days, mm. they knew how to, I don't know how to say it, work the crowd. They, they, they knew how to run the crowd's emotions, you know? Mm. I mean, they, they knew how to piss people off <laughs> or make people happy if they took a stupid-looking bump. And if you watched like the Valiant Brothers match, I mean, the people would be going nuts and they really didn't even do anything yet. And then you tie up and give them one arm drag. But the way they popped up and, you know, did things that kept action going and it was building up the story. And so it was, it was easy. Then, you know, after a couple of bumps and the bad guy would cheat and get control and the crowd would hate him. And then he just made the comeback. And you watch today... Hmm. There is none of that. Everything is so fast. They ring the bell and sponge kick, punch kick, punch kick, punch kick, grab a hold, hit me in the stomach twice, and then run away. And then they all start hitting the ropes and diving and jumping off the top. Seven finish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every match is the same. Kick out and look confused. Hmm. So it's like I, 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 me and some other guys, you know, I watch Raw every Monday with a friend of mine who's one of the PC coaches. Hmm. And like a year, a couple of years ago, I was going to the PC more and helping out a couple of guys I'd see in, in the classes and because I couldn't take it. I mean, the guys I knew could draw money. I mean, you if you're a, the beloved hero, you mm. can't run across the ring to somebody's foot. You look like an idiot, you know, and they, they don't get it. The bad guy running to a foot, but that happens every match. Is there, is there anyone, now that you've just mentioned it, so I'd just like to ask, is there anyone that you've got your eye on? Because I, I imagine that you're, that a lot of wrestlers change these days, and obviously we've just pointed out what sort of one of the parts that's wrong with it, and the psychology, but is there anyone that you do really like um, in modern wrestling? Well, you know, I haven't been there in over a year because of this uh, COVID flu stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I'm not like an official person there. They just love to have me come down, and I'm, mm. it's right down the street. And I mean, the WWE got a great relationship. It's a great company, you know. I'm sure they're going through a hard time with this COVID, trying to make a good production. So I feel sorry for them. Fans can't go yet. Yeah. But pretty soon, hopefully, things will be uh, opening up. But shit, 
What was your question? <laughs> senior moment. Who did I like at the PC? I mean, I haven't been there for a while, so they got some new guys there that I haven't seen yet. Mm. But I'm basically looking at guys that are bigger guys because you've got a lot of guys, 200 pounds, that are amazing athletes. I mean, they'll jump up and jump on the top rope and then do two flips in midair and then crash through a table. Mm. And as stunt looking as it is, what they're doing is, you know, super athletic, but they're also doing dangerous stuff. Yeah. I mean, these guys are doing stuff. If you're off a few inches, you're going to break your neck, you know, and some of them do, you know. So, uh, you know, so there was a couple guys I liked, but then one guy left and couldn't take the pressure and he left. And then there's a couple guys, I mean, I, you know, like there's a, one guy started, a big guy, Keith Lee. Yeah, I wish awesome. I would have had some. I wish I would have had some time to spend with him before they got him going. Because for a big guy, three fifty, who's super athletic, mm. you don't know how to do it right. You know, I mean, he he's just looking like he's a two hundred five guy. He doesn't. Really he does do too him. much high flying moves. I do agree. Well, for being his, yeah, because you need different characters, and if you're yeah. three hundred and fifty pounds, or you're Braun Strowman or Brock Lesnar. You're not flipping around like the luchadors. That's their thing. You don't need you to. Know. No, you don't need to because you look like a monster. Yep. So, that, I mean, I, you know, I, we'll see. I think the PC is starting to probably open up pretty soon. Things in mm. Florida are opening up and they got the vaccines going and all that stuff. And I feel great. So, I, I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you are feeling great. And I'd like to... Yeah, no, I can't in. complain. I was just going to go back to, just before we do talk about the Bruno feud, I just wanted to know, what was Vince McMahon Sr. like as a boss? Because I've actually never spoken about him on, this, on the show before. So I'd like to, from someone that has actually interacted with him, um, you know, was there when he was the promoter forward slash boss, what was he like? Oh, yeah. Well, Vince McMahon Sr., and I didn't really deal with Vince Sr. much because he was, you know, the man. Mm. And I was the 21-year-old newcomer, 22, you know. I was there seven years, I think, before the big one. But uh, he was very smooth. I mean, if you, like if you watch an old movie from the 30s, he's the perfect old-school promoter. Mm. He'd be walking down the hallway of Madison Square Garden with the suit on and the gray hair. You know, very class act. Very classy guy, had a couple partners, but, but promoters were workers too because you know they want to pull in as much money as they can, mm. and at the same time it was still you know their butts. They had to write a check to rent the garden, and rent. can you imagine what Chase Stadium cost to rent? And so they take a big gamble. But Vince was very smooth, very nice. But the way they operated. Back in those days, I mean, if someone gave them a problem or were a pain in the butt, they do things like, you know, this senior would be walking down the hallway of the garden and some low cart wrestler would run up and go, oh, Vince, I'm sorry to bother you, but I got to tell you, I did this show and Arnold Scullin only gave me $35 for the payoff. <laughs> I should have got at least what the other guys got, you know, 50 bucks. Back in those days, you know, so, you know, so Vince Sr. was the kind of guy, and he was smooth. He'd go, that damn skull, and he really, he cheated out of some money here. And Vince would reach in his pocket and give the guy 50 bucks. And the guy would go, oh, thank you, Vince. Thank you very much. And then Vince would walk, you know, off into the office room and, and go, hey, Arnold, skull, skull, and fire that guy. 
So <laughs> he's a pain to fire that guy. So it was like very smooth, knew how to, you know, work, uh, great, mm. you know, perfect old school promoter, which he had to be in them days, you know, but that's, you know, oh, yeah, and, you know, everybody thought he was great, but he had his henchman, you know, Gorilla Monsoon. Yeah. Golan or something. Fire that guy. <laughs> what about Vince uh, Jr.? Uh, what was your interactions like with him? Oh, Vince, you know, I really haven't seen Vince in a long time. Hmm. And it was a very nostalgic reunion. I was back at my first WrestleMania, you know, and with Bruno getting inducted in Madison Square Garden. And then when I went into the Hall of Fame, and it was a very nostalgic reunion with Vince. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, because you really wanted Bruno there, and I'm the one that kind of got him there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Vince is a cool guy, and he really loves the tradition. And I was there when basically he started. Yeah, you know, the, we basically kind of started at the same time and worked for his dad. So the, yeah, and then he's nostalgic, you know, like that way. So yeah, I mean, I got a great relationship, and the WWE has become a great company. Great mm. wrestling was. They'll take care of you guys if they need ten operations. If some idiot's got a problem, they'll put you in rehab ten times if they have to. You know, the Make-A-Wish charity stuff they yeah. do. It's really become a great company. And guys are making money. You know, some of them don't know what they're doing, but they're making money. <laughs> God bless them. They just run into a foot. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to um, talk about your famous feuds and one that wrestling fans still talk about to this day. I'm sure you probably get messages and tweets about it, your feud with Bruno Sabatino. So... It's like, what, well, how long would the build realistically since you were a, a, a child, you know, since you're 13 in a way, since you met him um, and then you trained with him and then he got you into wrestling and then you betrayed him. Could you talk to me basically about the epic rivalry? Um, essentially, that ended with the uh, incredible cage match showdown at Shea. Yeah, um, Shea. Well, <clears throat> I just basically want to hear from your well, words, a, you know, how yeah, was it? Well, that's an inter interesting story. To make me sound great, because <laughs> I was like, you know, maybe 27 years old now. Mm. Been there, did the Gurria tag thing, then I was doing some single things, and I was known to the crowd as Bruno's protege. And it even got to the point where other promoters, you know, Jim Barnett in the South or the Crockett's or something, would say, Oh, here's a guy we saw him, this new guy, Bruno's protege. What's his name? You know, so I got known as <laughs> Bruno's protege. <laughs> Well, okay, it's time for me to make my big move in the career and try to get a break and become a, a somebody. And at that time, Bruno, who like broke his neck the year before or something, basically retired and was done wrestling. And he was doing commentating with Vince you know, on the television shows. Yeah. So he was done yeah. wrestling. I think Bob Backlin was the champ or Billy Graham a little bit, but Bruno was done. And with all the knowledge I learned from all the guys over the years, I mean, I'm watching the business and I'm watching, you know, even Vince Senior and guys talking, but the business was going way down. Hmm. They weren't selling out the gardens. They weren't selling out. They weren't drawing money. I mean, yeah. you know, they tried Bob Backlund and Bob was a great guy, great athlete, but he just couldn't fill Bruno's shoes. Yeah. I mean, Bruno looked yeah. like a gorilla. Bob looked like a college kid. 
you know. You're not so, wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, he's a great guy, but he's Te- just, Technically, he was I, awesome. You know, like, he was fantastic. I couldn't, yeah, you know, I couldn't fill Bruno's shoes. Mm. But, so I knew, I said, you know what? Whoever, if anybody can ever get Bruno back in the ring for one thing, you know, a special little thing, he would become a big name. And all the publicity came out of New York in those days with the magazines, Wrestling Illustrated and The Wrestler. That's mm. for everybody else in the country because TVs were all local, this territory, that territory. They didn't see it. But I knew who could get Bruno one more thing would become a big star. So basically, I called Bruno and had this idea that to work into a match with him on TV. And, um, you know, I mean, I want to say too much because it's a historical thing. Mm-hmm. But it's basically my idea to try to get a break. Yeah. And I knew, yeah. you know, so I had to contact with Bruno. And Bruno thought about it. And he said, okay. And then Bruno called Vince Sr. As soon as Vince Sr. heard that Bruno was willing to come back into the ring to, you know, for something special, Vince Sr. went great because he knew his business was dying. He wasn't making money. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, he, it was great for him, too. And so, what a long story short, I mean, it worked into the, as Vince McMahon said, the biggest wrestling feud that nobody saw coming. Mm. The way it was built up, no one really saw it coming. And then when I snapped and lost my mind, people were in shock for a week. Then they tried to kill me. I mean, I had more heat. I was truly the most hated man alive. And I, I met, you know, Mike Tyson once four or five years ago or seven years ago, maybe some show convention. And I went, oh, Mike Tyson. I was at the Tyson Buster Douglas fight. And mm. I went up to say hi. And before I could say anything, Mike Tyson looks at me and goes, oh, Larry, God, I hate you. Why did you hit the room <laughs> on the head of the chair? And it freaked me out. I said, how? I guess, you know, Mike was a kid growing up mm. in Brooklyn. In New York, so he was a big Bruno fan. <laughs> Literally, the baddest man on the planet hated you. Yeah. Uh, biggest names in boxing. Oh, he he, he, he won a piece of you. <laughs> I wrecked his childhood. <laughs> but uh, but then that so that was really the story. I mean, Bruno also realized to him, well, if I do come back, I could hit Vince Senior up for some good paydays. Mm. You know, so he was today with one last thing, and it was easy. You know. And, and it, it turned out to, to really be, I mean, no one expected it to be that ridiculously huge. I mean, in those days, we sold out the garden three times, every other giant arena two or three mm. times. Say Stadium was like the kind of end of it. But in those days, wrestling didn't sell out stadiums. It was like unheard of, you know. Because I, I know Hogan tried to take credit for it as well, that he was he basically so the reason fact, why They sold turned out. thousands of people away because they... Well, of course he does. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a worker, you know, but if you look at it, Hulk, I'll tell you a funny story about Hulk. Hulk uh, was on a card with Andre hmm. and he's been, Andre was there, but Andre was a novelty kind of guy. You know, he'd be there for a few months and then Vince would rent him out to other territories, see the giant, like an attraction. But then they brought Hogan in when, when Terry first started because they needed a big guy for Andre to wrestle. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, Hulk was Andre's whipping boy at the beginning. 
And one day in the garden, he said to me, he goes, God, Larry, and this is when I was did the big Bruno thing and everybody hated me. And he goes, he asked me for some advice. He goes, what can I do? I'm really getting sick of getting beat the shit out of by Andre every night, you know. <laughs> I said, Larry, I said, the best thing you can do, because you're a big guy and he could move good. Mm. You know, he knew how to talk good. Mm-hmm. So he, so I said, you know, you should go to another territory. All the publicity came out, you know. He, and I don't know if it was my advice or it just wound up happening, but he wound up going to the AWA. First ter- Those days, was 300 times bigger so human emotion, the underdog. You know? mm. But uh, yeah, but the, the, the Bruno thing, God, people tried to kill me. I had to hide in trunks and get driven into arenas. I got shot at. You know. Oh, and, <laughs> it, but um, it was uh, it, it was what gave me the you know my big break. So I you know about that for thirty years until the broadcasting happened, which I didn't even plan. That's another story. I mean, you've received so many awards for it as well. I mean, like PWI, like Most Hate Wrestler and Best Match of the Year and Observer Awards. And I think it was like you, like Feud of the Year. So and for that, the fact that I'm talking to you about it now and I'm a bit younger, but obviously going back and I'm not saying yeah. I'm a pure wrestling historian, but, you know, I like to appreciate good wrestling and that was great wrestling. And I think wrestlers to this day, if that was an angle that's to take place in modern wrestling, that would have been done in like three weeks. <laughs> so you had the true yeah, build up. Yeah, well, that was the secret. I mean, great wrestling in one way, but what drew, what made everybody come was the story. Mm-hmm. Build up. I mean, at the end of Shea Stadium, when Bruno said, if I don't beat Zabisco in this cage match, I'll never wrestle again. They believed that. They had to be there. So it was the way it was built up you know, more than the wrestling. The wrestling's important and stuff. Mm, but the story, it was just... Yeah, the story. And, mm. and I hate to use that word story because that's what they do today and they go on forever. Do you notice mm. on TV that everybody was friends? Everybody's been friends for five years. Yep. I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> but you it's know, just friends, it's competitors. But you, like Bruno comes out, he's got the blood in his arm, you're lit, and he, he, he gives you a few more punches at the end when you're trying to raise his hand. It's just, yeah. fans loved it, man. You were just so hated, but it's one of those that's so appreciated now. I'd like to know very quickly, because you told a, a really funny Mr. Fuji story, how he put laxatives in haystacks. Fuji! Fuji was one of the big rivers in business. Some guy, I mean, if you fell asleep, on the plane, Fuji would shave one of your eyebrows off, you know, oh. <laughs> or something. So one flight, we're going to Japan, mm. and Fuji's on the flight, and Calhoun's on the flight. But Calhoun needs all three seats. I mean, he's ridiculously, you know, six hundred and ten pound ass. So Mr. Fuji takes a bunch of X lax, the stuff that makes you go to the bathroom. And dumps it in Calhoun's food and drink and whatever. And Calhoun's always got tobacco on his mouth, so he don't taste nothing anyway. So he eats all this stuff. Mm. Then halfway through the flight, you know, six hours, like twelve-hour flights, so and six, seven hours later, Calhoun's dying. He's got to go. He's dying. <laughs> he gets up. He can barely walk through the plane. He's so wide, and he gets to the back and like. Uh, you know, those little doors for the bathrooms on the airplanes, there's no way Calhoun can get in there. Mm. He couldn't get one leg through that door. That's how huge he was. 
So I felt sorry there was these two Japanese, you know, chick stewardesses in the back with the curtain drawn way back by the lavatories. And they were holding a big plastic bag under his ass. <laughs> it was <laughs> going. And people, you could hear some of the fart noise. And, uh. <laughs> and then later the, the smell was coming out. And all the wrestlers were getting sick. We all wanted to kill Fuji. Fired <laughs> Now we're all dying, even him. <laughs> oh, God, that was brutal. <laughs> I had to ask. I just I wanted to hear it, and I wanted to have that story in my podcast. It just I mean, corrects me up. We were really professional travelers. We traveled so much, and then we yeah. wrestled for 10, 15 minutes every night. So, yeah, you do stuff to break up the boredom and, I mean, after a couple of years, I got tired of driving around, so I became a private pilot. I had a private pilot's license, and God, for 20, 25 years, I flew myself to most of the towns. It was oh, great. Very, very clever, yeah. Yeah, so I, I love that, you know. The other guys would leave at noon, I'd take off at 4.30, and I'd be back at midnight, they'd be back at 5 in the morning. You know? What was it like wrestling in Japan? Obviously, we just mentioned about Fuji. You know, laxative, but I'd like to know from your experience, what's it like being in Japan and wrestling in Japan? Well, Japan, I mean, I was there the last time I was there, like 1991. And I was there in the 70s for a couple of times. And Baba back then had a good relation with Bruno and wanted Bruno to go. So they were nice to me. So mm. <laughs> Bruno's protege politics. But that's why I went there with some good deals. And I always, I, I always enjoyed going there. I mean, it was an interesting country. Uh, you'd walk down the street, and all of a sudden you'd stop and turn around. There'd be fifty kids following you, like all in the same uniform because they were like school kids, white shirt, mm -hmm. you know, answered. And they'd all follow you. And um, there was this thing I loved about going to Japan was the pachinko rooms, because they had this pachinko machine like like a machine where a little ball, you know, goes through things and you win more little balls. And if you win a bunch of balls, then you can cash them in for prizes. But they were all run by the mob. So if you run a bunch of balls, you can walk out in the alleyway, cash them in for money, for yen. So I'd sit there and play. And then one time I won a whole bunch. And I saw one guy go out the back door with his balls and I went, aha. <laughs> back and I, I walk up to this little like wall with a window in it and I tap on it and the guy opens the door and it's a Japanese guy and when he sees me he goes the <laughs> big American face there how's that so I cast my balls in for money so I used to it was an interesting place I mean um, when you walked out of the dressing room into the crowd the Japanese ladies would shoot their hand out and rub it across and rub your chest because Japanese men have no hair on their body. Oh, when they, okay. When they see a man walk out and he's got a you know, bunch of hair on his hair chest, they had to know what it felt like. You know, so it was a, yeah, an interesting thing. Always had a good time there, you know, and loved the pachinko stuff. And But when you got with the wrestlers in Japan, the promoters would always come in like Baba or, and they'd always say, Please lay it in. I mean, the harder you hit them, the more they thank you. It was, yeah. yeah. yeah.
yeah, they uh, they liked it, you know, like that. Um, so what was it like working for Vern and being the last AWA champion? Well, working for Vern was great. It, it was the AWA was one of the good territories to get into. Mm. The WWF or WWE. I mean, that was like the primo one, especially because they got the first jump on the cables and the national, you know, new era. But the AWA was always a great territory to get into and not easy to get into mm. because uh, Vern was a good payoff guy. Up in the Midwest, they didn't have all the state commissions to pay like New York and Pennsylvania, like Vince had to do. And the winters were so brutal that during the winter time, people got cabin fever. So it was like a gold mine. They'd go inside and watch a show, you know, during the week somewhere just to get out of the house. But in the summertime, which has only last like two and a half months up there, you know, they would be camping or fishing or, or getting out of the house because the winter was so brutal. So during the summer, Vern didn't run many shows. Mm. So it was a territory where you can make good money, but really have some time off in the summer and not really work your ass off so much as in some of the other territories where you're every day driving 300 miles, like in Texas, you know. Yes. Every town, three, four hundred miles away, <laughs> you know, but it was a good territory to work in. It was good to work for, you know, and I had such a good, by the time I got to the AWA and the NWA, I had such a reputation from the Bruno feud and all the publicity from New York. Mm. And as soon as I got there, as soon as I showed up on an AWA TV, the people hated my guts and I knew how to act. And, and be a, an a-hole. Yeah. I purposely made, you know, was an a-hole. And the same in the NWA. When I went down there, they already knew I was an a-hole. So I kind of had it made from that big Bruno feud. And the time that the arrow was changing into national cable, it kind of worked out good for me in a way because right after the Bruno feud ended and I went to Japan a couple of times, took a little break from the WWF so I wouldn't get burnt out. That was the time when the era changed and the cable, you know, national cable was coming. Mm. And Vince, Vince took, uh, you know, he made deals with Hogan and brought Hogan back from the AWA and Jesse the Body and Mean Gene and Bobby Heenan. And from the NWA, he grabbed a, you know, Macho and Piper and Steamboat. So he took all the top guys from the territories. So when he ran nationwide, people would know who they are, their heroes were there. And then that caught the other promoters off guard. So they went, oh my God, which made it easy for me because the AWA always needed a, a new a-hole. Mm. And then if I, I'd be there for a while, and then the NWA would always need a new a-hole. <laughs> And I go back to the AWA after a while. So I kind of went up and back as they needed me because their guys all went the WWE, you know, at the beginning. Okay. And what was it like? Because you would go to join WSW. And uh, just before I do talk about being in the Dangerous Alliance, because I love that stable. Like, it was just, oh, sort of a who's a who, like, you know, of talent. Oh, you did? Yeah, a fantastic stable. But I want to I know what's it like being in a tag team with Arn Anderson? Had you sort of known him before? Oh, I knew Arn before, you know, mm. from being in the NWA and that he was mostly down there. 
And Arn was like a, a great, he was a great guy. And, and he mm. was a great tag team guy. For most of my career, I didn't like tag team. I didn't want to be a tag team because you get more publicity, more money, more top shots as a single guy, mm. especially going up and back to different like I did and stuff. But then when the Dangerous Alliance started is when Bill Watts came into control of WCW. Because the TBS people had no idea who to hire to run this stuff. Mm. <clears throat> so anyway, Bill Watts is now in power there. And he his idea of the future now of wrestling, because we're getting like 1990s, was to everybody over 40, it's time to leave. And he wants to give Eric Watts a big push. You know, he thought it was time for all the old 40-year-olds to go. Yeah. New guys. Yeah. So, so they started the Dangerous Alliance, but I didn't like being part of a group. I mean, to, to me and our team and the enforcers were over. The people bought it, you know, working with Arn, it was great. We had a great time, but the people bought it. You had chemistry. Yeah. It was pretty solid work. Yeah, it was good chemistry and it, it, it worked. And, and that could have gone on longer even, but they did that group with Dangerous Alliance. Mm. So this is how, this is around 1990, 91 anyway. So right, I didn't want to be in the groove. I wasn't putting Eric Watts over. So I went to TBS and I went, oh, my knee hurts. Because <laughs> I've had four knee surgeries over the years. Nothing serious, but cart little cartilage tears. Mm. So I told TBS guy, I can't wrestle right now. My, my knee hurts. I need a little cartilage surgery. Arthroscopic thing. So they said, okay, so they paid for it and I went there. And so I got out of the dangerous alliance by complaining about my knee and getting it fixed. And then when I was home, I got a call from an executive producer that said, hey, uh, Larry, you know, we're not wrestling right now, but Jesse the Body just quit. He was doing the broadcast. He said, Jesse the Body just quit. Can you come down and voice over a couple of tape shows, help us out? I went, sure. Nothing else to do. I'll come down. So I went down, mm. sat down. And I couldn't remember maybe if it was with Jr. or Tony or Gordon or Adam, but I voiced over a couple of tape, you know, syndicated TV shows. And after that, the executive producer runs in and says, "You're the greatest guy we've ever heard! Holy <laughs> crap! Do you want to be a broadcaster? We'll give you this much a year." And I almost fell off the chair because that was the time when the you know TBS Turner and WWE were dishing out big contracts, and Turner was throwing money away like it was paper. You know, giving out big contracts to guys so they wouldn't leave. Mm. Vince had to dish out big contracts so his guys wouldn't leave and go you know there. So. It was a lucky time for me when these guys came in and offered me more money talking a day a week than wrestling <laughs> six, seven days a week getting all beat up. And I was like 41 at the time, maybe. Yeah. So that's how I, uh, and the politics were changing with like Bill Watts in the office and other things. So that's when I decided to, well, I took it. So that's how the broadcasting started. I never planned it. Never even thought about it. Just before we do talk about the broadcasting and you did become a commentator in WCW, um, you had like a little fun rivalry with uh, William Regal uh, for the TV title. 
I just want to know what was William Regal like to work with at the time because he's become gone on to become such a well-respected um, figure in wrestling. So I just want to know back then, yeah. what was he like? Well, Steve, when I was doing the broadcasting, and let's say I started in 1991-ish, and I'm watching these matches, and then I got all these new guys coming in like the Nasty Boys and the Steiners and the Public Enemy and Lex Luger and a bunch of guys who looked ridiculous because they were all weightlifters. And mm. But they really weren't good wrestlers. They were more worried about their biceps and their look. And they were getting paid a lot of money. They didn't care. But what started being invented because they couldn't do nothing was the clothesline. Every match, you know, clothesline, clothesline. I mean, in the old days, if someone did a clothesline and took your head off, you'd be carried out in a stretcher. And then the clothesline was banned and you had to do a big return. But now they clothesline a guy and he pops up quicker and runs at you for another clothesline. So I saw so many clotheslines by like 1994, 19. All I was commenting every match was, bam, what a clothesline. <laughs> and I was getting sick. I went, my guy doesn't know, know what they're doing anymore. So here comes Lord Regal, you know, I'm doing the broadcasting and they bring a new guy in and I see him in the ring and he knew how to be a great character. He had that snobby look, you know, just standing there, people hated him. Mm. He had a wrestling background. He came, you know, like the Wigan guys kind of guys from England and did a lot more wrestling. So he, he was good in the ring, but most of the guys we had couldn't work with William Regal because all they were doing now was clotheslines, punching and kicking. So I said to myself, you know what? This guy's so good, you know, because I thought Regal was great. Mm. He's got nobody to really wrestle with. <laughs> Let me do something special. So I kind of did something special where I came out of the broadcasting for a special. And had a few matches with Steve and on TBS. We went to the end and they showed I've been broadcasting for five years or four years. You know. Now I'm in the ring. We went 27 minutes running around going, they, they had a 27-minute match and they didn't throw one clothesline. You know. And so I tried to do something with Steve so guys would see stuff and mm. they and just don't have to close on and they're doing the same thing every close lines close lines how much did I you earn by the way um how much well, did you earn betting how many times Lex Luger would use a clothesline <laughs> well every Lex Luger match was you punch him a couple times and then he'd throw you and he'd give you three clotheslines and a torture rack that was a Lex Luger match mm. you know but <laughs> Then the Nasty Boys, and then there were, there were 10 clotheslines of matches. So anyway, but I did the thing with Regal because I wanted to just have a, show the guys how to do some good moves. And Regal was great in the ring with, you know, the visuals. And it was, it was a night off. It was good. And you got to work and with And that kind of, you know, got a little more pub. And then I went, yeah, I did a couple of matches with the... Uh, Young did you, Triple H. Did you know was, that there was something special about him as well? Or was it just, you know, this is just another guy? Well, I really didn't think about it too much, but I knew mm. by looking at him because he was a big guy and he had a good look and he could move good. Mm. So he, he had the ingredients. So, but I was doing the broadcasting and had a couple of matches with him getting ready for the Regal thing. 
and I knew he had the potential. I said, hey, here's a guy who had potential, you know. But I didn't really get that involved because I was broadcasting. Really didn't know the new generation, you know, the Eddie Guerreros and the Benoit's. And I really didn't know them because I'd broadcast and then go home. Mm. And they'd all be in the dressing room because it was like the newer era coming up. And I was already an old school guy over 40. <laughs> And when you would, so you'd go on to do commentary for a couple of years. And during that, you would actually come out of retirement to feud with the NWO, um, specifically with Eric Bischoff and Scott Hall. I'd just like to know, did you know, basically how much did you enjoy that? Um, it's, it's, I think people forget because people talk about Goldberg and DDP, but you were also one of the only other guys that actually stood up for WCW and, you know, fought against NWO. So I'd just like to know what your memories of that and uh, how was it for you? Well, you know what? It was great for me. <coughs> Coffee. That's okay. It's still early in the morning for me. <laughs> I never talked so much at one time. So the thing about the NWO was, I'm not sure whose idea it was. I think it could have been Eric's idea, you know. Hmm. bring guys in, you know, and because we know we needed new guys to wrestle each other. Flair wrestled Sting the 500 times already. And, you know, we needed a new guy. And then I was in a meeting with him because Eric started in the AWA, you know, back in the days with Vern. And, and he was in the office, Greg Gagne was in the office. And even though I didn't go to the office, I was kind of in there, you know, just talking to him and knowing him. And when I heard what the idea was, the New World Order, I changed some things at the beginning, the way Scott Hall came in, the way things happened. Because if you do it right at the beginning, you know, if you get a new guy and put him out there right at the beginning, like Goldberg did, because he, you know, it'll, it'll work, it'll get over. But, you know, the, you get over to most of can if you do it right. So I changed some things at the beginning and they listened and they got over so big then Eric wanted to get involved in it because it was such a huge thing. He couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. So I programmed the things with me and Eric to, you know, do that. And actually the match with me and Eric and me and Scott were the two biggest pay-per-view buy rates they ever did, WCW. Yeah. So yeah, but the, but the way it worked out, it was just weird because I didn't plan to wrestle them. I mean, I had things arranged for them to do. But then one show, me and Tony were sitting next to the ring doing the commentary. And Scott Hall and Nash was in the ring doing some interview. And it just ended. And they went to a commercial break. And Scott came over and leaned over at the rope and looked at me. And I stood up and took my headsets off and stood up. And the crowd went nuts. They blew the roof off the place. Yeah. And we didn't yeah. expect it. I mean, it wasn't planned, didn't expect it. But when 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 we felt the you know roof come off the place, we had looked at each other and went, the people want to see this. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I knew we had to do it. So no, I was scared. I, I, I did really enjoy that. And it was, it was unique. It was, yeah. I would like to talk about the arrival of Vince Russo, because he was still there in WCW. Um, what was it, what was it, what was the backstage feeling like when, you know, sort of Eric Bischoff got sent home and then you'd have Bischoff and Ed Farrar come in 
Um, was there sort of higher hopes? Did they sort of interact with a lot of people and, you know, the morale was improved or did you know it's going to turn into a bit of a shit show? Well, I knew it was going to shit. Mm. And what happened was Eric was removed or Lego, whatever, but at the time, no one really knew it. I knew it because I knew a girl whose dad was a big shot TBS and she was working there. WCW, I mean, Turner sold out to Turner Time Warner. Mm. So everybody knew that within a year or so, WCW would be over. They kept going for another year because they had a contract, what he thought. Mm. I said, boy, this is going to be really terrible. And it was. I mean, I did the broadcasting a little bit after he came in, but then my contract ran out along with Bobby Heenan's. And they didn't re-sign it. And so you know, that took care of that. But then I watched some of it and people are chanting Goldberg, chanting Goldberg. And who's the heavyweight champion of the world? Vince Russo, the writer. I want Sorry, to slip my wrist. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 from the biggest, hottest thing, the New World Order, I mean, we were doing 11 ratings. It was unbelievable. People were diving over the rail trying to punch out Bischoff because they really hate him. Eric did a great job. I mean, they, it was like the 1990s, but they were acting like we were back in the 1970s where the crowd was really into it, you know. But it, yeah, the last year, it, it was a sad death as far as I was concerned. Because, uh, yeah, when Ted sold that, they knew it was going. And they brought, you know, Russo in. And a new guy was running it called Tom. He was an accountant. And before, when Turner was printing money, like, you know, just giving it away for years. Now, because they sold out, now the job was not to spend any more money. So Tom, the accountant, he came up to me, he goes, Hey, I got uh, Vince's writer here. Uh, he was cheap too. And guess what? He wasn't even under contract. I said, Tom, he wasn't under contract because he doesn't mean this. He doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. He shouldn't even be in a business. He's selling CDs on Long Island. What else he know? So it just got horrible. And some actor was the champion. Oh, David. Vince was the champion. I, that's it. And then I, I really, I, I turned WCW off and Really didn't watch it for months, you know, till then I got into pro golf, so I didn't watch wrestling for 10 years. Just um and when I turned it back on after 10 years, it's all clotheslining each other. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm gonna make more money from this, we'll do some bets. Yeah. <laughs> um there was something that you um I think you you said basically you was almost going to actually go back to WWE in 2001 when Jerry Lawler got sacked um to do some commentary. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, there was some talk about going to the WWE and doing SmackDown. Yeah. But then, for some reason, it didn't work out. They decided to put someone else in that was with them a long time. They're big on yeah. that, like JBL, maybe. Some, but there was some talk in the beginning when WCW was over. But it just didn't happen. I would have done it. It would have been great, but it just didn't happen. Okay. And then you would actually join TNA for a bit. Uh, what was TNA like? Did it remind you of WCW? Or did you find it to be sort of a bit you know, well, no, different? Well, it was different because it, it was a new thing starting up. WCW was there and it was huge. You know, I mean, mm. TNA was new and just starting up. But it had, 
some great new talent. I mean, AJ Styles was starting off there. You know, I knew AJ when he was like 18, starting out. And Chris Daniels in the abyss. And I mean, I'm forgetting the names. Bob Rude, you know, Bobby Rude mm. was there. And I enjoyed it because I really didn't do much at TNA. But I'd go there, film a couple things. I loved going to the parks. So because they were filming Universal, I hit all the rides for free. And, you know, I had to sneak in the back and come back and, you know, do the thing with TNA. And I lived, you know, close by. Mm. So it was like uh, easy money, have fun with the free rides. And... Can't complain. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a great, it, it was a great time. But, but it just seemed like, and TNA had a chance to get bigger mm. and bigger, but then, it seemed to me, and I'm confused, but the owners kept changing. I thought it was the Jarrett's maybe at the beginning, but then Dixie wound up owning it. I mean, I, I really don't know the story because I wasn't wrestling. I was just grabbing some free checks and hitting the rides. You know? <laughs> but so it was easy for me, but they just kind of seemed they got to a point where it was confused at the top level. Yeah. Didn't really know what to do or listen to the right people. Now it's yeah. it's a shame to be fair because I was a big TNA fan. I remember you feuding with um, Eric Young and yeah, Don't Fire Eric, and you know you two had like a match as well. I just remember it just reminded me a bit of the Scott Hall feud that you had as well. I mean, not as big and obviously NWO, but just you know. But I think the roles were reversed where you were the heel and he was the baby face, and yeah, it was, it was a fun yeah. feud. It is a little, a little fun, yeah, Eric. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was fun, but you know. Showbiz. <laughs> and lots to talk to you. I'm how... surprised it's still on TV. I see. I'm Impact. very surprised it's still on TV. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know who owns it or makes it or does it. Uh, do you know what? I might have to research one, but I know Billy Corgan had it. Then when then he had to take him to lawsuits. And oh, it's just, it's turned to shit. I know Jared's not associated with it anymore, but I haven't watched TNA for a yeah. long time. Um, but it's just yeah, yeah, it's I mean, what it is. I just watch. I, mean, I watch Raw every Monday, so I know what's going on. Mm. I check out NXT to see if there's anybody catching my eye. But there's some big guys there, but I haven't seen them yet. They're still true. But I'm not going down to all those mass stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> and to talk, how did you find out that you were going into the WWE Hall of Fame? Oh well, I, I was just sitting around one day and I got a call from one of the people in the WWE office in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. said, hey, Larry, um, I'd like to put you in the Hall of Fame this year. And I went, oh, I mean, it was great. It was like, oh, yeah, thank you. I mean, it was like the perfect end of a dream, you know. Mm -hmm. Bruno inducted me and it's kind of, you know, the end of that dream that was meant to be. Hall of Fame, Bruno inducted me and then Three years later, you know, stupid Saint Sebastian exited the coffee, end of the dream, had the same ring as my hero. Mm. But it was, um, I mean, I considered it an honor. I really did to uh, do that. So, no, it, yeah, it was good. It was a. Feeds being done as well by your mentor and the late great Bruno. Um, so, they might, it was just like sort of the perfect ending in a way, you know? Yeah, it was the perfect ending for me. And it, it was fun. So to wrap this interview up, um, I, I feel like there's so much I've probably, that's, that's been left out and I would love to do a part two one day and to have you on again. So 
I would like to know, because this is going to be a bit difficult, because if you have to probably name one or two, say, matches or opponents, it's, you've had thousands and thousands of matches. So I'd like okay. to know um, who have been some of your favourite opponents and what have been some of your most memorable matches? <clears throat> well, in terms of having matches, uh, I hate to like put myself over too much. <laughs> I was really good in the ring and knew what I was doing. Mm. So most of the guys I was in the ring with, had, it was easy. Plus, back in my day, guys my age, I mean, I had great matches with Bachwinkle. I had great matches with Sergeant Slaughter. I, I had great matches with Tommy Rich. We went an hour one time. And Harley Race and God, Larry, that was the best. So there were some other guys. And then what I was doing, plus the secret, I stand there and not do nothing, stand there, look at the crowd, maybe chant, Larry sucks. Larry <laughs> sucks. And, uh, you know, so back in those days, I, you know, I'd mess with him. Then, like, 10 years later, these idiots, you know, on their smart sheets would say, well, Zabisco invented stalling. It wasn't stalling. I was running around doing stuff, and the people were chanting, Larry sucks. You know, if I would have went in the hole, they would have shut up and sat there. So, <laughs> so I invented stalling, by the way. But, uh, but you know, the match with Bruno was the most emotional one. and. Mm break but but uh, but there was a bunch of guys that because I knew what I was doing and most of them knew what they were doing it was it's some great matches with a bunch of guys Harley Race and uh, God Chief Wahoo <laughs> why I'm wrestling Chief Wahoo McDaniel he's getting older right and he's in the ring and we go to Tyburn he was balding he was balding with the big bald spot in the back so for some reason, some of the old timers would take like a black hairspray and, and black spray and spray their bald spots so they wouldn't look bald in the ring. And I guess that worked for normal people. But then when you get in the ring and start wrestling and sweating, you know, it starts dripping. Yeah. You get in the ring to, to wrestle Wahoo. And before we tie up, he goes, he pushes me back and he goes, what the hell? And he goes, and he pulls a tooth out of his mouth. And then I'm looking at him, and he's got black lines of this hair's color dripping down. And hey, I'm going, oh my God, this guy's dying before my eyes before we <laughs> ever do anything. Oh, God. Uh, there was another funny one. I can tell you this one quick. But picture this I mean, Carrie Von Eric, the poor guy lost a foot in a motorcycle accident. And he had to walk and have a special boot. Mm. But he kept it a big secret, big secret at the beginning. Even on the beach, you'd see him with his trunks, put two boots on. So he's wrestling Colonel De Beers one time in the AWA on ESPN. And Colonel De Beers don't know he's got the phony shoe because he's got no foot from the motorcycle wreck. Yeah. So the beer, he's on his back. The beer grabs his uh, ankle for an ankle lock, and all of a sudden, pop! The shoe comes off, and <laughs> the air is just a leg with like a little stump on it. Because with a foot is carrying, Colonel De Beer sees this boot in his hand, and he goes, "Ah!" Airs the hell out of him, and he throws it up in the air, and it comes back down, and he stands there, and Carrie grabs the boot rolls out of the ring and goes under the ring. And the fans now, this is on the taping for ESPN, 
They're in sh- there's not a peep to like in shock going, did we just see someone come off here? And then about a few minutes later, Carrie rolls back out from underneath the ring and gets back in the ring and starts his match again. And the beers is like nothing happened. It was one of the strangest things. I'd I love to have been in the crowd for that. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> and I worked with Carrie. I mean, everybody I worked with was, was really a night off. I had some great matches with Chavo Guerrero in LA. I mean, oh, yeah, it was... It was I, I lived at a good time with the career when other guys knew what they were doing, too. <laughs> we talked about Fuji's rib story. Um, I want to know just first rib story that comes to your head because I know you have said before that you sort of would avoid it if you could because you know like if someone does it to you then you've got to do it back to them and then it just never ends so I'd just like to know if, um, if there's any stories um, so w- while we're at the end that you can share quickly any funny rib stories that come to your head any funny rib stories let me think uh, ribs I mean I can't brag about a rib because I never did ribs yeah and the reason I never did ribs is because I didn't want to get the revenge rib. But there was guys, I mean, Fuji, some, he was like one of the main ribbers. But like if, if, if a guy was in a dressing room laying on a bench, you know, taking a nap because he just drove four hours, Fuji would take tape, you know, like tape you put on your wrist or something. He takes three or four pieces of tape and drape them over your boots. And then he'd light them on fire. And then he leave. <laughs> so pretty soon the guy got the giant hot foot look up and his whole boots, you know, up in a flame. It's really the tape, you know, burning, but it looks like your <laughs> boots on fire and guys would freak out and be hopping around. But I really don't remember any, you know, ribs like ribs because I wouldn't rib anybody. Mm. Only rib the one time I got Gorilla good when I got my pilot's license. Tony was afraid to fly with me. Ah, oh, the Polak will kill him. So one time I said, oh, yeah, we've got a time Friday. Will you drive Wednesday? I'll drive Friday. So Tony goes, okay, what time do you pick me up? I said, well, I'll pick you up at 4. Not that far. Oh, okay. So I get to Tony's house. This is the day before the cell phone. And he's pissed off because now he finds out the town we're in that night is Albany, New York. But Albany, New York is like a four-hour drive. And the show, you know, you got to be there by 6.30, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Tony goes, we'll never make the show, you idiot. Too far of a drive. I said, we'll make the show. I got the plane. And he all of a sudden, he shut up. He goes, you bastard. And he's too cheap, you know, not to, you know, he, he went, even though he didn't want to go on the plane. So he came with me because he knew that's the only way he's getting there. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting there with his arms crossed in the plane next to me for an hour and a half. We took it to, and, you know, just, just didn't say a word to me the whole trip. And then I landed the plane and we got there and it worked out great. And then so he flew back with me. He flew back with me and we landed, everything was great. Then the next week I cracked up because I found out he started taking flying lessons. We're all getting sick of driving around, but he took a couple of lessons, but then he quit. He was too cheap. <laughs> then you start the trend then. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't have any kids then, so I could afford to do all that stuff. Nice. Um, I've actually got a good friend uh, who lives in Holland. His name's Bobby. And the reason I mention it, he's actually a huge fan of yours. And he's met you several times. 
uh, when he comes, when he basically goes over to America at sort of conventions and stuff. I'm not too sure if you would happen to remember him. Because uh, I know you probably made me hundreds of fans at, you know, events and conventions and legend shows. But yeah. um, well, there uh, is, I'm surprised when I do some of these, you know, especially the bigger ones, where there, there's people from England, there's mm. people, from, you know, Japan, there's people from Australia. They fly in from all over the world, especially for manias and some of the other big conventions. There's a couple of guys, I, I think they're from, I don't know if they're from England or Scotland. They're always flying in mm. some of these big conventions. I'll see them. Here we are again. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> no, he just basically wants to, you know, he wants to say hi and sort of hopes you're doing well, just to give a shout. And when he does come over to America, he'll be getting a uh, photo for you. So it's normally him and his mate um, Peter, I believe. I, I, I feel bad for getting Peter. It's uh, Bobby and Peter. They're massive wrestling fans. I've, yeah, I've, that might be the two guys I'm thinking about because there's two of them that were. Yeah, they always wear like, the matching t shirts and like the legends. Yeah. They always... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know what you mean. I know what you no, mean. They're, they're, they're amazing. They fly across. Yeah, they're... It is amazing. Which, the only thing that stopped them from going to Romania last year and this year is COVID. So they'll be yeah, back soon. <laughs> yeah, um, hopefully. I was going we'll to say. Back. Um, if there's anything you want to say or anything you want to plug. But just before we were recording, um, because I'm from the UK and England, and you was talking to me about your time in England, I just want to know if you could share any funny stories when you have been to the UK. Well, I was only there one time. Hmm. And you know, it was like a few-day tour around some cities around London. And like I said, I saw Big Ben, and I saw the Crown Jewels. And uh, went to the museum with all the night outfits and all. I mean, it was it was cool. And then I almost got killed twice trying to cross the street. <laughs> but then that that was it. Then we flew back, you know. So I didn't get a chance, like I said, to be there long enough. And I really wanted to see Stonehenge, damn it. Mm. But uh, that didn't happen. But uh, I had a great time. Yeah, met a movie star. Met an old movie star. That's awesome. So this yes. has been a, a really good episode. I said I'd probably like to do part two to be honest. I feel because you've had such a long career, and there might have been bits I might have left out, and I'm sure there is. But for now, where can fans yeah, there's find you there's... on social media? You know what? I don't. I don't. God, I I have a flip phone. <laughs> I don't. I don't tweet. I don't do faceplant. I don't do Instagram. I don't. I don't do any of that. I just talk in text and mostly talk. And no, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's not a good There, there is nothing good. wrong with that, to be honest. There's nothing. I think sometimes we can sort of benefit from social media sometimes. But you know, have what? You got there any, is one, yeah. well, there is one thing because most of the stuff's been locked down and things are starting to open up now. I'm doing a convention in Jacksonville, Florida, mm. June 12th. And, but we did a movie like a year ago. I was in a movie with five other wrestlers and some other wrestlers came in for a cameo. Mm. And it's placeable. It's about a group of wrestlers that go to a town and wind up saving it from, from aliens. And it was done really good right here in Florida. And last year, it's been getting edited and put together and all that. And it should be done like any time. The COVID might have slowed it down a little bit, but it's almost done. And uh, so that's going to be coming out. And the funny bit is, I did a, I, I, I made a record, a song called Boo On Me. And I made this song, Boo On Me, in 1980, when everybody wanted to kill me. 
And it disappeared for 40 years. I had a copy and the director heard it. And he said, hey, so, so boo on me, I think is going to be in the movie at the end when the credits go up. But you yeah. can Google the replaceables, the movie. And I think they're starting to do some pub for it. And it should be done pretty soon. Hopefully it'll be out by this fall. That's awesome. Yeah. And the, 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 the replaceables. <laughs> the replaceables. I'll put that in the description. Um, but yeah, even legends. Boo on me. <laughs> boo on me. Might have to put that in the trailer. Um, so, so I was just going to say thank you, Larry, for coming on. I've been honoured to have you as a guest, the living legend well, well, himself, you, the only fun. living legend, by the way, not Jericho. I know you and Jericho had yeah. that, that moment, but that's fine. But you are the only living legend as we speak. And for now, I hope you stay safe, and hopefully one day we can do this in person. Um, but it's been a great episode. We've covered a lot and had a good laugh, and I'm still smiling. But yeah. um, well, here's. Yeah, <laughs> that I made your day it's been great so now I'd like for everyone to keep an eye out for what you call it podcast there'll be more episodes in the future and stay tuned for my sponsors <laughs>